Coast Nation. It is the last week of March. David, what are we doing this morning? We are rolling it up. We are rolling up the last week of March, getting a full week's worth of crypto news injected into your brain as fast as possible. First, we're going through the markets. What is the market saying? Then we are going through releases. What got released in the last week? Then we go through the news cycle. What what was the conversation like in the news over the last week? Then lastly, we finish up with some ecosystem takes. Who had some good opinions? Then we go into what David and Ryan are excited about. And then we finish things off with the meme of the week. Guys, there is a lot to fit in this week. Absolutely. This comes out at you every Friday morning, both on the podcast and YouTube. So catch it that way. David, you ready to get into markets? Let's do it. All right. What is the market telling us about Bitcoin this week? Bitcoin in a little bit of a slump this week. We are down to $52,200. Uh, you know, again, still $50,000, still relatively expensive Bitcoin. But, you know, from people's expectations of what a bull market is like, this is low, I guess. Uh, and so you know, we've been having a number of red days ever since, I think, like March, uh, the, the middle of last week. So 10 days ago, Bitcoin has been in this downtrend uh, and people people are bearish, honestly is is my, my my sentiment read of the market it's funny the market certainly has a short-term memory david like when in doubt guys zoom out if you zoom out we're, we're doing pretty well on the year aren't we we're doing okay we're doing yeah. okay <laughs> With, think... uh, when we started uh bitcoin started this uh 2021 roughly a little bit over twenty thousand dollars so let's let's remind us of that fact doing just fine how about eth eth is kind of the same story and i feel like ethereans are even more bullish that this despite our bearish? ultrasound but yeah bearish excuse me and this despite our ultrasound money podcast this week um so maybe enough folks haven't heard it maybe the right people haven't heard it i'm not sure what is making people bearish on eth these days yeah, when, when Bitcoin trends down, Ether always trends down harder again. And when Bitcoin trends up, Ether also trends up harder. So like when, when there is a bearishness in the market, there is more bearishness with this Ether price. So we are at the low, low price of $1,612 for the Ether price. Only uh, a little bit more than $200 above the previous all-time high versus Bitcoin, which is uh, two and a half times its previous all-time high. So like a bunch of Ethereum market commentators are just feeling and bearish, I guess, uh, which is weird. Uh, but again, uh, you know, I guess it's really about people's expectations versus reality. And people, uh, people have really high expectations, I think. I will stick to what we've been saying for the last year or so, hilariously undervalued, yeah, even hilarious. at these prices, specifically in a bull run, I think we'll see higher highs before this is this is all over. Let's talk about total locked in uh, DeFi, David. Actually, let's do total value locked in DeFi first with DeFi Pulse. So mm -hmm. we are kind of flat, I guess, in this right. first quarter ever since February, 40 billion or so locked in DeFi. What is this telling us? Yeah, it's just telling us the same thing as, as the market at this point. Prices are going up, prices are going down, and that's really just changing the value locked in DeFi. I don't think that's much of a different story other than the asset prices of these things that are in these applications. Um, there's only so much that value locked in DeFi can really tell us, um, and especially when you know this market is guided by price movements. This is really, at this uh, local point in time, just a proxy of price movements. How about DPI? So this is the top 10 DeFi assets by market cap uh, captured in this index. It's down on the week too. So DeFi is taking a tumble along with Bitcoin and Ether. What's the story here? 
Yeah, uh, last week DPI was at $440. This week we're at $380. Again, same same tumble that we're all talking about. Um, and then I believe DPI is also down versus ETH. And so this is just people are being uh, having fear, I guess. So people are, are moving into safety, which means they're moving up the market cap stack. DP, uh, DeFi tokens are moving into ETH. ETH is moving into BTC. BTC is moving into the dollar. Um, then that's just the, the general like 10 weeks or 10 days of bearishness that we've seen lately so has this uh slowed slowed down DeFi season then in your mind are we maybe kind of in a holding pattern the DeFi season is on pause yeah i'm stuck between like we are about to finish this consolidation period and april's gonna be really really awesome and and the other the other thing i'm stuck behind is like oh this could be like a really long flat period and we don't actually break out of this flat period until something like june or july with eip 1559 when that gets triggered and if you look at the uh, dpi versus eth on the on those time frames the 2021 time frames you do kind of see this uh this wedge that is is forming um ryan if you hit that uh maybe that six month marker at the very bottom of your screen um yeah yes yeah so so it, it, people are thinking that that this area needs to get filled over the next like three to four months and then and then we can have DeFi season um but DeFi season uh unofficially on pause unofficially on pause all right we'll see where that heads in the weeks and months to come it does feel like overall david the market is taking a little bit of a breather during this bull cycle um, let's talk about this tweet because even though prices are down the ethereum economy just keeps humming this is some analytics some stats from into the block uh, we've got almost six hundred thousand daily active addresses being yeah. used in ethereum and an active address is like a bank account these are mm -hmm. all representative capital pools, 600,000 of them being used daily. That is absolutely massive. Addresses with a balance have increased by over 4.4 million. Uh, there's about a trillion dollars being transacted on chain. 96% in Q1, yeah. in Q, this is all Q1, this is all year to date stats. 96% of the ETH addresses are also profitable on their ETH. And a lot of ETH is leaving exchanges too. Anything else uh, we should highlight on some of these into the block stats? Yeah, this is to me, this just indicates the discrepancy between market fundamentals and uh, user expectations or price expectations. Uh, people, people are expecting things like 2017 to happen now. Uh, and I, I think that's perhaps why the price maybe got a little bit ahead of itself, even though I don't really think it did. Um, but like the fundamentals uh, that are behind the Ethereum economy, again, just keep on chugging. Keep on chugging, keep on getting stronger, as does DeFi revenue, David. So mm -hmm. we just passed the 1 billion mark in total DeFi protocol revenue. $1 billion in revenue generated by these new money protocols. Uh, that's super exciting, David. Like, look at this. Uh, look at the growth. So here. much it's of just, this has come since January. Yeah, it's and it, and it looks like it's kind of that hockey stick parabolic growth that you look mm -hmm. for in emerging high growth tech stocks, uh, economies, high network effect sorts of um, sorts of areas. That's what we're seeing here. And this again is something there was no inkling of in the 2017 bull run. A lot of projects, Zero a lot revenue. of yeah, there were it, zero DeFi basically in 2017 and no capital assets. So part of this 
2021 bull market is the story of the rise of capital assets in crypto, primarily being led by these DeFi tokens. Even though prices are down, revenue just keeps going up. Yeah, we started this year again at 0.4 billion revenue in DeFi. And so for that means in Q1, 0.6 billion dollars of DeFi revenue has been made. This DeFi revenue metric, I think, is a really blunt instrument because it doesn't talk about um, not all revenue in every single DeFi app is the same. Um, not every single DeFi app captures the same amount of upside of that revenue, um, for example. So like uh, liquidity providers in Uniswap, those are the, oh, those are 100% of the people receiving the Uniswap fees and Uniswap token is receiving 0% of that fees. That may change in the future. Um, so yeah, it's a very blunt instrument, but also it does a very good job of seeing like, well, it doesn't, it, it call it blunt, but like a billion dollars of cash flow is a billion dollars of cash flow. Like in aggregate, DeFi has made a billion dollars of cash flow and has made 0.6 billion dollars of cash flow in the last quarter. Uh, and so if anyone tells you that like DeFi is just a bubble, like you can point them to a billion dollars of money being flown around at the direction of these governance tokens, which is an important uh, thing to note. Yeah, in part of our conversation uh, earlier this week when we were talking about Wall Street, Wall Street is starting to understand these DeFi tokens as capital assets as well. So that is a, a narrative paradigm shift uh, also, David, have you ever wondered what is in some of these crypto indexes? Because this chart from uh, Misari, this table layout from Misari, kind of kind of shows what the various options are. And the the question I often get from people who are new to crypto is like, what what's a way I can just set it and forget it? Like buy an index and then just just leave it. And here are four different options uh, and the composition of those options. You, you hear us all the time talking about the the DPI, the DeFi Pulse Index. It's, it's an index that we really like because it's compiled of these top ten DeFi tokens by market cap. But you can also go the traditional route and buy um, indices from what we would call crypto banks. There's the Bitwise Ten. There's the Grayscale Large Cap. There's the Bloomberg Galaxy. Uh, in index of tokens, and there's also uh, Bitwise, which uh, we, we've talked about. This is a new index with DeFi-specific tokens. Uh, kind of cool to see it laid out in this way. Do you have any favorites here, David? Yeah, oh, I have some very much some unfavorites here. Look at the Bitwise 10. It's 80% Bitcoin, 15% Ethereum. And then the next the next biggest largest allocation is 1% to Litecoin. And everything else is so small. 0.9% Chainlink, 0.8% Bitcoin Cash, 0.6% Stellar Lumens. This is absolute crap. And this is like the Bitwise 10 is like the, the biggest def index for crypto there is. And so like my, my head is that look at the Bitwise top 10 versus the Bitwise DeFi. And look at that difference in quality. Bitwise DeFi is Uniswap, Aave, Synthetics, Maker, Compound, Yearn, UMA, 0x, Loopring. All of those have all of those have revenue associated with them. Do you know, Ryan, do you know how much revenue uh, Litecoin made in the last year? How much, David? The blockchain, it, it took in less than $100,000 worth of fees in the last year. And so like, and Stellar Lumens, I'm pretty sure it's less than two grand of fees in the last year. And like fees for store value assets are a different story than, than revenue tokens. That's important to note. But like, 
just look you might as well if you're gonna invest in the bitwise 10 you might as well just put bitcoin and ether on your balance sheet and call it a day use the bitwise DeFi index or the DeFi pulse dpi index to, to get your your real indices here because what's well, the point of allocating 0.3 percent to eos like what that makes no sense well bloomberg galaxy and i think this index if i'm if i'm correct the bloomberg galaxy index was created in like 2018 or 2019 it has a three percent eos uh, uh, allocation uh, and a eight percent bitcoin cash right, allocation right, right. which feels like very arbitrary to me as right. well so that one might make even less sense than the bitwise 10 but i think the point here david is like um we're still very early stage in these indexes, in these indices, and more need to be more need to be made that that capture the the good assets in the space, the good maybe the most bankless assets in the space. And I think David, we're going to have some stuff to announce along those lines with bankless pretty soon. More on that at some future episode. But bankless um, has opinions on what should be in an index. Let me tell you, strong that. opinions, strong, strong opinions. opinions. <laughs> So stay tuned for that. Um, let's get to this last one in the markets. This is a tweet from Joe Weisenthal. Uh, wow, the GBDC, that is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, of course, that we've talked about so often on Bankless. Premium to NAV just keeps getting more negative. Now at negative 14%. Almost the entire time I've been in crypto, while well, this product has been here, David, it's been trading at a, it's been tra GBDC has been trading at a premium to NAV. That means it's it's more expensive than buying Bitcoin on spot. The last few weeks that has reversed, and it's getting even more negative. So um, you can actually buy GBDC in your Fidelity account at a fourteen percent discount to spot. Uh, what we've we talked about this a few times on on rollups, but it it hasn't ever dropped uh, to to this degree. Mm -hmm. What's kind of the net effect of this? Yeah, this is simply a product of the fact that it takes six months for people to deposit their BTC into the trust and then be able to turn that BTC into GBTC and then sell that and pocket that premium. There, that six month lead time means that people are committing to this, this trade for six months. They don't know what premium they're going to get at the other end. And so, you know, when and people have been making so much money on this trade, this has been such a common trade. The premium for the for GPTC was has been positive, which means that people have just like institutionalized this premium, which is terrible because at some point the premium must become efficient, right? If it's positive for as long as it has been, which it's been positive ever since like 2015, really people haven't really been uh, working this this premium. Uh, it really has been about 2019 or later, but still. Um, People have been just uh, assuming that this premium is going to work, and so they've been throwing Bitcoin into Grayscale, and now now the premium is going in the opposite direction. And it makes sense that the premium should fluctuate above and below zero and try to hold zero as steady as possible. But because of the regulatory requirements, we have to have that six-month gamble where people submit their BTC and hope that that pre premium lasts. Uh, and this actually reminds me of like the whole Ampleforth rebasing mechanism where it would rebase positively and then it would rebase positively again and it would re rebase positively again. And then people got stuck in that psychology. It's like, oh, this thing just prints money. And so they would throw money into it and at some point it just becomes inefficient and it starts to unwind in the other direction. I think it's possible that this negative premium is the new status quo for quarters, multiple quarters long. 
because that's what it's going to take to unwind all of these people that have made these bets into turning BTC into GBTC and pocketing that premium. It definitely could be, especially as we've talked about before, if more competition starts to enter the horizon. This is a news item, but Fidelity has just um, filed for an ETF, a Bitcoin ETF. That is a competitive pressure on the less efficient GBTC product. And maybe the market's starting to price some of those things in. But I'll tell you what's interesting, David, is some of the downstream effects of what you were saying. Um, people ask the question, like when you deposit your crypto, say Bitcoin, in a centralized crypto bank and you lend it out, um, to, to someone like BlockFi, uh, you earn a decent interest, 5%, 6%. Um, a lot of that interest was generated off of this GBDC arbitrage opportunity. Now that that's going away, we're, we're starting to see some downstream effects. So BlockFi has recently slashed their, their rates. Used to be you could deposit a fairly large amount of Bitcoin into BlockFi, receive 5 to 6% uh, interest on a loan. That has dropped down to like the 1% to 2% um, interest rate. So we're, we're seeing some of this downstream effect on the, the crypto lending markets as well, at least the centralized crypto lending markets. I think that's going to filter into, into DeFi. Now, some people have gone so far as to, as to say, uh, well, this makes crypto lenders like BlockFi uh, insolvent. I think there's a lot of FUD going around like that. Um, I don't believe it. I don't think somebody like uh, BlockFi is going to, unless they're terribly mismanaged behind the scenes, going to go insolvent in the middle of a uh, a bull run like this with the the balance sheet they have and with the investors they have. But it does change around the market dynamics, and there are some downstream effects of this. Anything more we should say on that, David? I got nothing. All right. Well, guys, we are going to get to releases in just a minute. But first, we want to talk about the fantastic sponsors that made this roll-up possible. If you are looking for a product that connects your fiat bank account with DeFi tokens and products, you need to download the Dharma mobile app. Dharma is a non-custodial smart contract wallet and comes with a bridge that connects you right into your bank account. Dharma is the fastest and most efficient wallet between your fiat in your bank account and any token on Uniswap or even any vault in Yearn. With Dharma, you can get over $25,000 per week into the DeFi universe and you can do it non-custodially. If you or anyone you know is hot on DeFi and you're trying to get your money into a DeFi investment, Dharma is the place to go. Signing up and going through KYC is an absolute breeze. It took me just under three minutes, and after signing into my bank account via Plaid, I am now just one transaction away from any token that Uniswap has to offer. Go to www.dharma.io, that's D-H-A-R-M-A dot download the Dharma app, and get yourself unbanked today. If you want to live a bankless life, you need to get a Monolith DeFi Visa card. Monolith is both a one-two punch of an Ethereum smart contract wallet, as well as an accompanying Visa card that lets you spend the money that you have in your Ethereum wallet wherever Visa is accepted. It's really a fantastic tool that lets you use Ethereum for what it does best, which is holding and managing your financial assets, but also keeps you connected to the rest of the world's payment rails. Monolith also offers on-ramp services for getting your fiat money into the world of DeFi. So it's trivial to top up your Monolith card if ever you need to, and your deposited money goes straight into your non-custodial wallet. So your money is never held by a centralized intermediary because your Monolith wallet is native to Ethereum. Monolith helps you transcend both the legacy and the crypto worlds because the money that you hold in your Monolith wallet has the power of DeFi behind it. 
Swapping assets on Uniswap or earning yield in DeFi is at your fingertips. But with Monolith, so are the groceries at your grocery store or the coffee at your coffee shop. Go to monolith.xyz to sign up and get your Monolith Visa card today. All right, guys, we are back with releases. Let's talk about this monster release. David, we had Devin, who is a founder of OpenSea on the podcast just a couple of weeks ago. Now, OpenSea is raising $23 million to scale the largest marketplace for NFTs. What is OpenSea and why is this raise significant? Yeah, OpenSea is basically the Craigslist, eBay, Amazon of NFTs, right? So like, like duh like that's the easiest business model ever uh and so congrats congrats to devon and OpenSea. i expect i expect this to work out uh and uh i, I would imagine that most listeners of this podcast have been on OpenSea at least once uh and it's really just a, an nft explorer along with like an nft transaction history right and so you can see uh, because everything is on chain you can see previous offers being made and accepted or denied for any nft right um and so yeah, uh, pretty cool. Yeah, check out that Ask Me Anything we did with Devin, who's the co-founder uh, co of OpenSea for more info on this. You know, what's pretty amazing too is the investors who are yeah, leading wow. this round. People like Naval, you see, but also Mark Cuban, Tim Ferriss, wow. uh, Alexis Ohanian from, from Reddit. From Reddit. Mm -hmm. uh, so at uh, Blau, RAC, a lot of the people who are in the NFT scene are part of this, a lot of mainstream people too. So that's great to see. David, let's also talk about another past Ask Me Anything guest, the folks behind Alpha Finance. This is Soon Alpha just be Finance. Everyone. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're collecting them all, guys. We, we produce a lot of content around here. All right. But this is Alpha Finance. Um, really interesting protocol when we took a look at it. But now they're adding another layer to their token, which is token economics. They are adding, I believe, cash flows to mm -hmm. their token. What's going on here? Yeah, so uh, alpha token holders will actually be receiving fees from the protocol, right? And so this is this is something I'm, I'm I really hope, and I'm not sure if this is the future of DeFi, but I really hope it is. And my one of my biggest critiques of of and, and not mine, this is this is an opinion that I share with many other people, is that equities on the equity stock market, the ones that don't release dividends, mainly the tech stocks, they're really just a valuation on greater fools, right? Like you'll buy Apple just because it's Apple, and then you will hope that you'll sell it for a higher price later. You're not buying it because it's paying you money. Uh, and this is something I'm hoping that DeFi really doesn't fall into this trap of not, like there are fundamentals and then there's a token, but there's a discrepancy between those two things. So when we actually, as an, as an industry, pay out the dividends generated from the protocol to the token holders, that actually is an intrinsic link between the value of the protocol and the value of the token. And so this is what Alpha is doing. So nice draw Alpha actually paying out money to the token holders. Uh, and I hope this trend continues uh, because I want there to be a link, an associative link between the value of the token and the actual revenue and value of the application that isn't just association but is actually intrinsic to actually passing value and so nice job alpha paying their token holders good job fees accrued in the first uh six months would have been 1.7 million so not insignificant and growing quite fast uh, you know i agree with you there david because what else do you do with excess capital that your protocol generates you've got two only two other options besides releasing it in some sort of a dividend form one is you put it in a dow treasury and then the question is, what are you going to do with all of that capital? Can you find a productive use for it? And with the Dow Treasury so large, I think they're like it's hard for them to find a productive use for all of this capital. 
Um, the second thing you can do is buy back your tokens as well, buy and burn. That's what Maker does. So all of these mechanisms are super interesting. And, uh, and I think the future of DeFi tokens, let's talk again about the future of DeFi analytics. These assets, of course, are open source. These networks are completely open source. Dune Analytics, which is, I think, the go-to spot. If you are trying to be a DeFi financial analyst, this is the tool that you're using. They just released their V2 version. It's now live. I have to confess, I haven't taken an exhaustive look at this, but why is why is, why is Dune Analytics, why is this important for us to, to know about this tool, David? Yeah, Dune Analytics is all about uh, data analysis of DeFi. And so like we've been saying before on the, on the Bankless podcast is like DeFi, Ethereum, in, in these, these uh, economies are inside out. They're completely transparent. And by that definition, there is so much data. It's like as much data as you can possibly need. So now it's about how do we parse through that data? How do we consume that data? And Dune Analytics is a data consumption tool. So I expect this to to really just inject itself into the mainstream consciousness when, uh, especially when the Wall Street bros come over and and want to play in DeFi, they're going to need data analytics and things like doing analytics are going to be able to provide that to them. Uh, and so it's really going to be about who can use these uh, data digesters, these data processors. That is really going to be a, a very valuable skill moving forward. And we are already seeing um, VCs and DeFi teams and almost every anyone uh, try and find people that can uh, use these uh, DeFi data consumers like Dune Analytics. Uh, that is a really valuable skill that everyone wants. And so uh, banging on that drum, if you are looking for a job in crypto, in DeFi and Ethereum, get good at Dune Analytics. It's really valuable. Absolutely. Here's a chart from our friend uh, Richard Chen, who was on the podcast, the One Confirmation podcast. Um, this is DeFi, total DeFi users over time. Look, man, we just silently crept up to over 1.6 million unique DeFi users. This is the sort of analytics you can get in real time on Dune. Super cool, man. Super cool tool. Um, let's talk about NFTs for a second. In a release, Crypto.com is coming out with an NFT distribution tool. You know what this... This kind of, I, I, I'm starting to wonder about NFTs. Um, we've got people who j just kind of said NFTs are absolutely a, a bubble. He sold all of his proceeds uh, that that he made from his art from crypto into into fiat. Um, we have groups like Crypto.com now starting to enter that it just really yeah. doesn't feel as authentic as it once was. I, I wonder if we're, we're starting to see the early signs that NFTs are kind of getting overcrowded. The lower quality things are starting to flood into the space. This just felt like a signal to me. You know, mm -hmm. God bless crypto.com, use the, use the credit card, but getting into the NFT space, right. you know, months in, it feels kind of top signaling. Right. What do you think here? Yeah, I'm reminded of uh, Sue Zhu's metaphor of the uh, shitcoin roller coaster. Uh, for those that, that aren't familiar, if uh, go, go Google search the euthanasia of roller coaster, and it's just a roller coaster with that goes in loop to loop to loops. But the loops get tighter and tighter and tighter. And the metaphor is that the iterative cycles on these things are just faster and quicker and shorter and of lesser quality because people are trying to get in on the hype. Uh, that's what this feels like to me. It feels like we're going through the euthanasia roller coaster of NFTs right now.
Possibly, possibly so. Um, but we are just getting started, I think, on Ethereum mm -hmm. Layer 2. Here is Hermes. This is a ZK rollup Layer 2 that just came out this week. I think this is targeted on payment use cases. This is something that's kind of flown in under the radar, David. We've talked about so many different Layer 2 projects. This has been out there building. Now they're deployed on Ethereum for the payment use case. I just, I, I think this is part of the, the theme that we're seeing uh, going into the second quarter of of 2021, that layer two is is coming with like a force, and it's here, and the tech is being built out, and uh, a lot of different approaches are are being tried. So pretty cool. You guys can check out Hermes at Hermes.io and uh, start using layer twos now now today. Um, David, I, I think you might have some commentary on this. What is going on with Maker? They're increasing their debt ceiling. Mm -hmm. What are they doing here? And what does this mean for ETH and Maker? Yeah, dropping an absolute cannonball into the protocol change for MakerDAO, increasing the maximum debt ceiling for Ether as collateral from 2.5 billion DAI to 15 billion DAI. And so what this means is that each collateral inside of MakerDAO has certain risk parameters, and one of these risk parameters is called the debt ceiling. And that's how much DAI is allowed to be uh, drawn out of certain specific collaterals, right? And so Ether has this uh, maximum 2.5 billion DAI that is allowed to be uh, borrowed against ether the collateral type and um, the the risk the risk parameters can get adjusted in order to make sure that the maker DAO system is appropriately solvent appropriately controlling risk uh, but they are deciding that it's an okay move to increase the debt ceiling from 2.5 billion to 15 billion die for ether as collateral and so maker DAO is letting ether be far more capital efficient as a collateral type in its vaults and so we are I think what we are going to see is uh, an increase of Ether inside of MakerDAO, and we're going to see a, a very significant increase of DAI circulating supply. Uh, and we're, what the, the moral of the story is that Ether is becoming, again, the ca most capital efficient asset on Ethereum due to its trustlessness advantages. Um, absolutely massive amounts of, of DAI liquidity are possible as a result of this, uh, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, and the reason they can do this goes back to a theory that we talk about so often on Bankless. Um, we term this economic bandwidth. So Ether has more economic bandwidth than it did a year ago when some of these debt ceilings were set at $2.5 Why does it have more economic bandwidth? Because ETH has increased in moneyness. It's become more liquid. Its, it's uh, total market cap has increased by a tremendous amount. So that allows Maker to and DAI to consume more of this value, this more of this trustless economic bandwidth. And uh, ETH is increasing in its, its store of value property and its moneyness, as we would say. Just for added perspective, there's currently only 2.9 billion DAI outstanding. And so going from a 2.5 billion DAI uh, debt ceiling for Ether to 15 billion DAI is a big deal. Like that is a lot more DAI out in the ecosystem. Bullish maker, bullish for ETH as a monetary unit, as a monetary asset. Very cool. David, something else that's very cool is uh, the bankless community has offshoots now. Mm -hmm. um, this is a... a as somebody who's starting a new podcast inspired partially by Bankless HQ and ETH Hub about ETH life, ETH culture, the story behind builders. Uh, do, do you know much about this? I haven't given it a listen yet, but I'm excited to do so. 
Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't listened to it yet either, but I, I'm, I have it in my rotation. Uh, Dennis, he works at uh, Kyber. Been been in the Kyber team for for years now. Been in Ethereum since b- before I was. Uh, I met him in uh, Tel Aviv when I did my uh, ETH Ultra uh, Triple Point Asset uh, talk, uh, and and so he's doing the ETH Life podcast, which is a, a podcast dedicated to the countless Ethereans passionately building on the best blockchain in the world. Uh, so Dennis, perhaps uh, perhaps an, an ETH Maxi, uh, join join the club, I guess. Um, and I only point myself as an ETH Maxi because everyone else does. I actually don't accept that identifier, but I take it as a funny joke. Uh, and so I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan of more more uh, Ethereum content. Like, please, someone else help. <laughs> we need more Ethereum content. So Dennis, I'm, I'm super happy to see that you started a podcast. Yeah, that's awesome, guys. Check out that podcast, definitely. All right, David, let's flip to news. We got to talk about the big news item of the week, the Alpha oh, what was Leak. That? I, I missed it. What, what happened? Uniswap, man. It's something to do oh. with unicorns. So Uniswap <laughs> is dropping its uh, version three. This is like long awaited, much teased version three. We actually put out a whole Alpha Leak video about this that we'll include in the show notes that you can take a look at, which was our sort of first analysis, first reaction. I think we got some things right, a lot right. We mm-hmm. probably got a few things wrong. We got something wrong. <laughs> we got something wrong. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. But look, um, Hayden Adams is going to come on the podcast and clear it all up for us. Um, that will release sometime in the next week or so on the Bankless podcast. But give us the, the skinny. What What is new in Uniswap V3? Yeah, the cool new feature about Uniswap V3 is what they call concentrated liquidity. And so previously, if you want to provide liquidity, for example, to the ETH DAI pair, you would provide it for the full range of possible ETH DAI trading valuations, which is literally infinite in both directions, right? Like up to $1 million Ether to down to one penny Ether, right? You would be providing liquidity for that full possible range of, of, of money expressions. With concentrated uh, liquidity, you can just provide liquidity for between $1,800 Ether and $2,200 Ether. And what this means is like you are taking on more impermanent loss risk, as in uh, take, for example, uh, you are providing uh, in, in just those same parameters, $22 to $1,800 ETH liquidity on the ETH die pair. If Ether is at $1,800, that means you have 100% of your liquidity position in Ether and you have 0% of it in DAI. And then if Ether goes from $1,800 to $2,200, that it flips. You uh, Because you have concentrated liquidity in just that spectrum, at $220 Ether, because you are supplying uh, between $220 and $1,800, when the Ether price moves to $220, you have uh, 0% Ether and 100% of your LP position as DAI. And so it allows you to market make around a very specific band of liquidity inside the Uniswap curve. Uh, and that has enormous uh, implications to what it can do. Uh, and so I, I think people are going to get really creative with these um, variable liquidity across the same curve of spectrums that Uniswap V3 is offering. Absolutely. It makes parts of the curve very deep uh, mm-hmm. in terms of liquidity, maybe deeper than anything we've ever seen in an automated uh, market maker. One thing it does not do is we sort of thought it did at the very beginning is act as kind of a, a stop loss for a liquidity provider. It really doesn't do that. It's almost more like you are you're adding leverage in a way between those positions. You're, you're taking on even more in permanent loss risk uh, if you if you um, you know do an ETH die pair in a specific narrow band. More on that when we talk to Hayden. Anything else we should say on that for now? 
Yeah, Hayden's just been begging us to get him on the Bankless podcast. And so <laughs> finally, now that he finally released Uniswap V3, I guess we'll let him come on. Maybe. Um, I guess. I guess. I guess. We'll be Hayden, generous. Yeah, we'll, we'll let you on this time. But, you know, just because he released V3. Just because he released uh, V3. <laughs> <laughs> All right, David, Decentraland Casino pays in DAI. This, like, file this under weird jobs categories, like weird <laughs> crypto jobs categories. Decentraland, of course, is this entire virtual world. And inside of Decentraland, this, this populated virtual world, almost like a virtual reality city, we have a casino. Mm -hmm. And this virtual casino is hiring people to operate the casino tables and paying them <laughs> full-time positions in DAI in order to do so. <laughs> this is crazy. This is like, um, you know, ready awesome. player one stuff. Uh, very cool. But we talk all the time about the jobs that are available for you in the crypto and the DeFi economy. Did you know you can get a job at as a virtual casino table operator, maybe at a poker table or something like this? Crazy stuff. Yeah, imagine working at a casino at home. How crazy is that? <laughs> uh, and just think about the, and, and so this is kind of like exactly what Ready Player One predicted, where like the economy inside of like the virtual world will come to dwarf the economy out at the outside world. And if that prediction comes true, we would see like something like this, where, um, you know, some of these very initial use cases would, would come to manifest, manifest themselves in the virtual world. No surprise that it's something along the lines of gambling. Uh, that seems to be where, where these things start off with. And so that, I think that's just absolutely fantastic. There are jobs available for inside of VR to operate a casino. That's just so cool. Also, you're getting paid in crypto money, right? Mm -hmm. It's like people talk about, well, where are these monies actually going to be used? Well, they're being used in this new crypto economy. That is the unit of exchange. It's DAI. It's not physical fiat dollars. Yeah, and the other thing that this reminds me of is the sovereign individual thesis, where uh, people around the world are going to compete in these same job markets, and so ah. somebody in somebody in some some third world country has to, it gets to compete with somebody from you know the United States, and that the, that wage maybe maybe the the wages uh, are less uh, less interested for somebody who is in the, the first world rich countries, but more interesting for people in the third world countries, and so this could be a great equalizer for. people people in third world countries who are trying to access better wages uh, because everyone is operating on the same playing field in VR and online. We, That's pretty cool. Look, man, we are entering an entirely new economy, entirely new job market. And uh, I'm glad you're with us because this is the, the cusp of things. We need to learn these sorts of things in order to, to stay relevant and to earn wages in the 21st century here. Um, all right, let's talk about this a petition letter coming from the MakerDAO community. And they're petitioning one of their largest investors, which is a A16Z, um, Chris Dixon and team. We've had Chris on before. Uh, this is the, the Maker community actually asking A16Z, they, they own a bunch of MKR tokens, asking them to get more involved in governance here. Um, apparently, they like they want their input, they want their votes on various MakerDAO proposals. And A16Z is currently less active than the community would like them to be. You know, what's interesting here is this is sort of the same uh, problem that uh, stocks fallen under, right? So like, um, you know, who, who, whoever votes in, in major shareholder decisions, like I own various mutual funds, I never vote, I always use some sort of a proxy. And um, I do, I do think sometimes these DAOs struggle from almost a tragedy of the commons problem. Whereas, like, you know, 
A16Z, if, if the governance decisions are going according to, to plan, they don't necessarily have to, to spend time on these issues uh, and provide governance feedback if the rest of the community is already doing it for them. So I wonder if we have to kind of tweak around incentives to get better governance participation in the future for some of these DAOs like, like Maker. What do you think? I think the other half of this story is that MakerDAO is trying to you know, dissolve the DAO. They're trying to dissolve the foundations. And so therefore they need the, le the next biggest MKR holder to step up, right? Because and as soon as the foundation uh, dissolves, uh, A16Z will be the next largest governor of MakerDAO holding 6% of all uh, MKR tokens. And so, and also I, I believe when uh, A16Z bought those MKR tokens, they said that they wouldn't use them for governance because they wanted the community to govern things, uh, ah. and they didn't. They didn't want to. Um, they didn't want to tinker with that, right? They wanted to be a bottom-up system. But you know, the MakerDAO that was two years ago, two plus years ago, and so now the, the MakerDAO protocol is in is in a state where like we need all all players to get involved, right? Because the foundation is no longer steering the ship, uh, and so this is more. I think it's more of an invitation to say like, hey, like it's cool to to play in governance now. Um, there's a conversation here to be had about governance by V or governance by hedge funds. But at the end of the day, you know, these systems are really governed by capital. Uh, and so I feel like it's going to be a normal distribution between like retail traders who own MKR and A16Z who owns a MKR. Um, it's it's going to be an interesting story to follow. Absolutely. I agree. Absolutely. Um, okay. Beeple. So he, he, we, we've reported on this the last few weekly updates. He, he made a massive amount in the NFT market, 69 million dollar sale and those funds were raised in eth he apparently it's come out that he immediately converted 53 million of his nft earnings that's uh, almost all of them after i think the the third parties kind of took a chunk from the sale he, he converted that from eth to usd david what what does this mean to you I mean, this is just a, the logical thing to do. Like, people, he's got taxes to pay. Uh, he received this money in this volatile cryptocurrency, which he wasn't really familiar with. Uh, and so it, it's like kind of the rational thing to sell this into USD. Like, the guy wasn't rich before. Like, people, pe people wasn't rich. And now he has six, uh, now he has fifty three million dollars, and he has it in a volatile crypto asset that he's not familiar with. Of course, he's going to sell it. Like it'd be crazy not to. Now, at the end of the day, like we can say, but like he's going to miss out on all the gains. Like blah blah blah. Like, and I think you're kind of right. Like this is gonna ultimately, I think, turn into a a Bitcoin pizza story. This is gonna be the Beeple ETH story. But at the end of the day, I also don't completely don't blame him. Like he doesn't understand ETH is ultrasound money. He doesn't understand Ethereum is the name settlement layer on the internet he just got paid 53 million dollars for making some digital art like we don't have to hold him accountable to, to make sure that he just like holds eth so like he can help us pump our bags like no like let the guy cash out yeah i totally agree he had like full he owes the community nothing he has the yeah. full ability and right to to cash out i i do think at some point in the future he may be regretting this but totally. who knows maybe totally. maybe not you know, maybe he's just happy with like he should be happy with fifty three million dollars. Yeah, what's the that other mean thing where he's, he's crying with the cash, like wiping <laughs> yeah. cash with, with the tears away from his eyes with dollar bills. It's like, gonna be okay cool. for people. Yeah, it's gonna be okay for him. But I I do think that um, you know, the that this is why it's also important to get the the narrative out that mm -hmm. that ether is a store of value because people don't quite understand and they might have may be making some decisions that they later regret sort of ETH pizza type moments. The other thing he said here, which I understand the context is that NFTs are absolutely a bubble. So 
he's feeling that he's feeling like I just created a piece of digital art. It just sold for $69 million. Mm -hmm. I don't understand any of this. I'm just going to like get out while this thing is, is bubbling and like end of story because it could be over tomorrow. So I, I understand that perspective too. Yeah. Daily reminder that one year ago, ether was $100. So (laughs) crazy. (laughs) It's probably time to sell if you're people. Um, Number of ETH validators. This is a tweet from Evan Van Ness. So one thing that people don't understand is the sheer amount of validators in ETH 2.0 right now versus other proof of stake chains. So this is a this is a table of ETH 2 validators. There's 110,000 unique validators versus Tezos. There's about 400 versus Cosmos, 125 versus other proof of stake networks like Nano, 117. Um, Ethereum is a different flavor of proof of stake. I think people miss that. You know, proof of stake is not all alike. There uh, is is various levels of democratization of your ability to actually run a node. And Ethereum is on one end of the spectrum, which is the most decentralized proof of stake consensus mechanism that exists right now. Some of these other proof of stake networks are much less centralized or much less decentralized. Um, any takes here, David? Yeah, it's it's important to note that like validators on Ethereum are inherently different because like you could be running multiple validators on one machine, right? Like one validator equals 32 ETH. Um, two validators equals 64 ETH. If you have 64 ETH, you can stake it on one machine. Um, Tezos and the 397 validators there, they, that might actually be 397 unique machines. I, um, I'm, I, I think that's true. Um, still, only less than 400 is incredibly like not decentralized. That is not a good number. Uh, and so like there is some parsing apart to, to fully understand the impact of this number. But at the end of the day, the economics, the the game theory of this is is uh, converges upon decentralization, no matter what. Because you know, you know, maybe you have three thousand two hundred ETH and you have a hundred validators. Well, you have the hundred times more incentive to protect Ethereum, right? And so the 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 game theory holds up. Absolutely, all of these proof of stake networks have different trade offs with respect to decentralization. Other things, uh, Elon Musk. Another tweet came out this morning. Don't defy DeFi. So now Elon is talking DeFi. So it was like Dogecoin, it was, you know, uh, NFTs, it was Bitcoin, and now it's DeFi. What does this mean? Is he just trolling all of us, David? No, no, he's, this is him. I mean, no, I don't know, but here's my opinion. (laughs) He's going down the DeFi rabbit hole and he's figuring it out. Um, maybe he read ETH's ultrasound money. We, we, I'm pretty sure he, he came across Bankless earlier in his lifetime. Um, and so who knows? Who knows? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. Definitely, Elon, you are invited on the Bankless podcast. That's mm-hmm. a standing invitation. So you just let us know when you're ready. Yeah. Um, let's talk NFTs, David. Starkware is raising some funds. Um, this actually isn't specific to, to NFTs, but it's a technology that Immutable X is using to create sort of a an NFT trading chain. We've talked about that a little bit before, but Starkware has just raised a whole bunch of money as well. It's part of the story. And they've got technology that allows you to kind of scale on Ethereum's layer two. It seems like so many layer twos are using Starkware uh, tech. What, what should we talk about here? Yeah, I, I think what this means is that Immutable X is going to launch sometime, uh, maybe next week? Question mark. And Immutable X is uh, this. It, it's got crazy tailwinds behind it. It's both NFTs plus 
Layer 2. Uh, and they, these are the, this is the team behind Gaza Unchained. These guys have really been optimizing for scale and gas optimization since day one, right? Uh, and so uh, I think this is really, people are going to always ask, like, you know, how is Ethereum going to do anything for the world if it costs like $200 to mint an NFT? Well, the answer is Starkware and Immutable X. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that Immutable X story play out over the long term because I think they're going to be really important NFT scaling infrastructure. And for anyone that's read uh, my article, Digital Cultural Revolution, I have high aspirations for what NFTs can do for the future world of, of creators and art and general digital culture. Short term, there might be a bit of a bubble in the NFT market. We're not sure. But long term, all of this stuff is hugely, hugely bullish, uh, definitely. Um, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey sells his first NFT tweet for $3 million, sold it on Ethereum-based platform called Scent. So Jack Dorsey's getting in the scene as well. This is kind of a DeFi NFT combo, and uh, he's active. Jack Dorsey has been a pretty strong Bitcoiner. I don't know if I'd call him a maximalist, but I would. Uh, hasn't talked. You would. Okay. Would. He hasn't talked much about any other network. So talks a lot about the the value of, of, of protocols, decentralized, decentralized protocols, but only talks about crypto in the context of Bitcoin. Do you think that's going to change? Oh God, I don't think so. Unfortunately, I think Jack Dorsey is pretty well entrenched. Um, for some reason, Bitcoin maximalism kind of just like takes hold in people's brains. And when it stays there, it stays there. Yeah, well, we will have to see. He's doing something with NFTs, um, but um, he's donated all of this to charity. Maybe that's mm -hmm. a part part of the rabbit hole for him, or maybe he just stays a Bitcoiner forever. Um, I want to know why he did this, though, because that is really the bigger question: is like, why is Jack Dorsey NFTing tweets? And we know that Jack Dorsey is interested in uh, turning Twitter into more of a client system, where where Twitter itself would just run one client, but open it would enable more uh, more open source technology to Twitter and allowing different clients to make tweets. And so he wants to decentralize the actual Twitter protocol. So that's interesting. Um, and so that and that comes from his very deep-rooted knowledge in distributed systems and crypto systems. And so why is he minting NFT tweets? Because that's also highly relevant. I want to see what the long-term... Do he's doing it for a reason. This is a research and development type move from Jack Dorsey here. Yeah, there's definitely a lot in the broader crypto market for uh, for what Jack's trying to do, which is kind of create a, create um, protocols out of social media platforms. We'll see where he goes with that. Um, Nifties, backed by major investors, buys into meme. V2 date announced. This, this story is about uh, the meme founders. Maybe you'll, you could explain this project a little bit. Um, they've just teamed up with some pretty large investors to launch something new, something called Nifties. Mark Cuban is involved in this. Uh, Joe Lubin, other VCs. The, the whole meme story, we had Jordan from Meme on a, a while back to kind of tell us about the inception of this thing, but it's a crazy, bizarre story how this organization formed. And now it's actually receiving like traditional mainstream investment to extend what it's doing, which is like what building out meme based NFTs and, and selling them like an NFT production house. Yeah. I, the, the crazy, this is the, the, my through line for this story is like how much demand there is for good projects because if, if people who are familiar with meme the meme story meme started off as a joke where people minted this token called meme and then they airdropped it to people and then all of a sudden the people that it got airdropped to 
just decided to start doing work for it. And they, ac they accidentally created this meme protocol, which is now receiving funding uh, and legitimate seed investment to carry the vision out. And so uh, I, I'm fuzzy on the details, but it's something along the lines of like, you can mint your NFT and deposit it into meme and meme will issue you like rewards. It's kind of like some bank account, like savings interest system for artists. Um, you'll, I, I'm, again, I'm fuzzy at the, on the details, but like the fact that this thing started off as literally a meme and is now receiving uh, VC funding is pretty crazy. And that just indicates to people how much demand there is for good investments in this space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Time Magazine is also getting in on the NFT. This is our last <laughs> NFT story this week. They've got three special edition covers. One says, is God dead? The other is, is truth dead? And the third, which is probably my favorite, is fiat dead? So Time Magazine uh, time the company of course like just this is this is traditional media right now they're joining the nft um the nft i guess hype train engine and they're they're selling these magazine covers the the third one is fiat dead is kind of interesting to me david because it's like it's clearly targeted to uh the crypto market to mm -hmm. for, for crypto culture essentially it's it in a way we are incenting mainstream media to give crypto what it wants, which is more crypto culture. And I find that that kind of interesting too. They're definitely trying to sell these to crypto natives. My, my, my head is at the uh, is God dead one actually. And that, that takes a little bit longer to explain, but uh, God, uh, God is dead is that Najit say quote where uh, he ran through the streets and said, uh, God is dead, God is dead. Uh, and really what that was a, a parable of how uh, Najit say, uh, I'm, I'm terrible at pronouncing his name, um, but he was saying like our, our old institutions, no one pays attention to anymore. And so what is going to organize us in the future? That is what he meant by uh, God is dead. And to me, that's like a heralding of like, are we about to migrate from one set of archaic institutions into what? And that is that is the question. Is God dead? Like, well, if, if our previous ways of organizing are, are defunct, what do we move into? Um, that's my takeaway. Uh, absolutely. Time is trying to tap into something that appeals to crypto natives for sure with this. Very cool to see them enter. Uh, Bitcoin stuff, David, Fidelity, the massive, the massive bank, the massive asset manager in traditional finance, they have now filed for a Bitcoin ETF. David, if massive. Fidelity can't get this done, massive. right? who can get it done? I think right. traditional big banks get what they want from the federal government. So I think what this means is that an ETF is all but inevitable. There's no way regulators are going to hold out when their, their lobbyist bankers even want Bitcoin ETF. So a big, big move, I think, for, for Bitcoin, big move for crypto in general. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, if, if Fidelity can't do it, no one can. And if Fidelity can't do it, again, I'll re-echo what I said in the last week weekly roll-up. If, if Fidelity can't do it, then this is definitely a political move to protect the interests of the US dollar. And they're putting those interests ahead of retail investors who are getting effed up by trusts, as we talked about with the GBTC premium debacle earlier. Uh, and so the the listing of, an, of a Bitcoin ETF is does not help the US dollar. It hurts it, um, but it's what the people want. And so we're going to see this play out. Can Fidelity break through to the SEC and get the uh, Bitcoin ETF? Hopefully they can.
while we're on the subject, David, maybe we should touch on uh, regulation as kind of a category. This is the the People's Bank of China has now officially said about their central bank digital currency. Of course, we've we've told you that they're moving full steam ahead on deploying a digital currency, a central bank administered digital currency in China. Um, the quote is that a completely anonymous central bank digital currency is not an option. This is kind of one of those headlines, which is like, yeah, we yeah. knew that. Surprise, surprise. Central banks, government coins do not want, when they go digital, will not preserve anonymity, will not preserve privacy. They want to track all of the transactions um, for, for, for many reasons. I, I think, David, that this is going to be true, not just for China, but for any country, Western countries, uh, Europe, anybody that deploys a central bank digital currency, there's going to be a um, there's going to be no incentive for these states to actually implement privacy measures as part of the deployment. Like civil rights groups will fight, have to fight awfully hard to make that happen. And it feels like such an uphill batter, battle. So the digitization of central bank digital currency means the death of privacy, at least in my mind. That's my prediction. Yeah, that's exactly right. I have no further takes. All right. Well, let's get to this then. Uh, FATF is drawing up some cryptocurrency guidance. I think, David, we should. Um, this is not. This is not really good news. They may be targeting DeFi and NFTs, but people need to understand what FATF is because it's not um, central to any one nation state. It's sort of an association of nation states. Can you talk about what FATF is and the implications of this guidance that they've just put out? Yeah, it's kind of this just this global advisory group that all of these global powers like United States, countries in the EU, even more um, that they just listen to and generally subscribe to. And and people are talking about, well, they're, since they're just an advisory group, does this even matter? But apparently, the, like the social contract between all these people that subscribe to the FIDF as an advisory group, um, according to Coin Center, uh, if a member of the nation state was to refuse to implement FIDF guidance, then there could be severe diplomatic or financial consequences could result. So there, there are three specific things that this slew of guidance brings to and brings to these uh, brings to these countries who apparently are supposed to listen to the FATF. One is surveillance obligations for non-custodial entities. Uh, and so I'm just going to I'm just going to read here because this is outside of my domain of expertise. Um, the draft advocates for an expanded definition of VASPs, uh, virtual asset service providers, the persons or businesses obligated to register and conduct AML surveillance. That, that these people could now include non-custodial custodial participants in cryptocurrency networks, such as multi-sig minority key holders and various participants in smart contracts and layer two mechanisms. And so I'm actually a Gitcoin multi-sig signer. And so I would have to actually prevent, present uh, KYC AMLs to, I don't know who, uh, maybe maybe Gitcoin, I guess. I don't, I don't know. But uh, because I'm a, a multi-sig minority key holder for something that spends money and manages funds. That's that's weird. Um, and then there's also scrutiny of peer-to-peer -peer transactions and privacy enhancing technologies. Um, uh, the draft subtly advocates against peer-to-peer -peer transactions and transactions involving privacy enhancing technologies. Think Zcash Monero, but also ZK Money that got released uh, on Ethereum recently. 
this draft argues that regulated virtual asset service providers should limit support for transactions with non-regulated parties, so-called unhosted wallets, aka uncustodial wallets, aka your personal Ethereum address, and insists that developers of new protocols should limit the availability of private and peer-to-peer transactions by design. Ooh, don't like that. And then last one is customer counterparty identification. The draft recommends that virtual asset service providers should subject all transactions to the travel rule. This would obligate exchanges to collect specific information about who their customers are paying or being paid by. This is a similar to the proposal counterparty identification requirements in FinCEN's, FinCEN's ongoing midnight rulemaking, the one made by Steve Mnuchin, which said that like uh, uh, if you ever want to withdraw money from a crypto wallet, you have to uh, attest to the, your ownership of the money that you are sending it to. And then vice versa, if you're sending it from your crypto wallet to Coinbase, you have to t- attest that those are your wallet as well. Um, so just overall, just more and more surveillance going on or uh, suggested for surveillance from FATF. So yeah, we, we don't like this. We, this is bad. Yeah, I I guess it's important to realize that this is just kind of guidance or some sort of a proposal that they put forward to this country, mm-hmm. these countries. Um, but David, th- this definitely feels like final boss type stuff, yep. right? And it's it's throwing down the gauntlet and saying, we want all transactions to be identified. We we want to know AML, KYC. We, we want to know the sending and receiving parties on both sides of those transactions. And uh, we don't like peer-to-peer transactions. And we don't like, we especially don't like peer-to-peer private transactions. So this is final boss stuff. This is stuff that, um, you know, is, is it going to be hard to, to fight? And uh, I'm not sure what the implications of all this are. You know, some, some folks are saying, look, it's just a proposal. We've seen stuff like this over the years for crypto um, all along. And uh, others are saying that this might have teeth in the future. So we'll have to watch this one and see how it plays out. I guess in good regulatory news, there are some people like Hester Pierce, crypto mom, as uh, as people in the crypto industry know her, hopefully she's coming on the Bankless podcast at some point too. We've been in touch. Who take a, a much more rational view on this growing industry. So here's a quote from, from Hester Pierce in a recent speech, I believe. Perhaps government officials should pause to consider the flip side of crypto, its value in protecting people from illicit activity. She has always been very pro-crypto, seeing this industry blossom, seeing all of the good things that come for countries and citizens that adopt cryptocurrency uh, and advocates for things like we should have an SEC-approved ETF for mainstream. Um, so there are some good people in in regulatory bodies and government that actually understand this space. And wherever possible, David, I think we need to uh, to elevate the conversation to them and and elevate their roles in government bodies. Yeah, and at the end of the day, this is a nuanced subject. But you know, crypto is a populist movement. It's bottom up. It's it's money and systems by the people for the people. And there's a certain amount of resonance that we see certain uh, people in governmental bodies have resonance with that populist movement. Um, we saw people like AOC immediately li- align with what I call a populist uprising with the whole GME debacle, the the people versus the hedge funds, and so many members in government just immediately aligned 
aligned with the people, not the hedge funds. And so there's a certain amount of like pro-populism, I would say, in the United States Congress. And I think certain things about crypto, if, if as an industry, if we represent them in the right way, we can get them, convince them that this is actually uh, in, like populist technology for the populist movement that they are also helping support. And so uh, we need to figure out how to uh, share that populist message in this technology because you know what the, the what the FATF is really is doing is helping entrenched players and people like AOC and Bernie Sanders are the very populist uh, left movement don't like entrenched players that's exactly who they're going against and so there's an angle here that we can definitely work with yeah and the, the same is true I think for the for the populist right and, uh, and and those groups as well but this is absolutely a battle for hearts and minds. Uh, that that is uh, certainly important. We we need to propagate these narratives to win that battle. David, have you kept up with this? This is uh, oh, Bitclout. God. Maybe we'll end on this. What is Bitclout? Um, this uh, story says it's an insiders only pre-launch, uh, but it, it's really a, a social media revamp. So it's almost like a Twitter on some form of a maybe a Bitcoin forked blockchain. Have you kept up with this story? Yeah, I have not kept up with it, but my the, what I have gathered is that they it is a supposed to be a a, a censorship resistant platform for you know general DeFi stuff, and th this DeFi stuff, uh, this version flavor of DeFi is leveraging the clout of celebrities to help people speculate and monetize. And so where this censorship resistance comes into play is like celebrities are getting their image monetized by someone else. Uh, and if this thing is truly censorship resistant, then that'll just happen regardless because it's censorship resistant. Um, and so we're, it's going to be tested, I guess, on, on that spectrum. But I don't really know much more about it other than that. Yeah, so I, I looked into it a little bit and I actually um, like tried to use it and started using it. And so... One of the interesting things they did is they took about 15,000 accounts from Twitter and they just auto ported them over to, to BitClout, right? It's almost like, almost like, you know, how uh, SushiSwap sort of did a vampire attack on Uniswap. It's almost like a vampire attack on Twitter in, tr in trying to bring those profiles over. But the other thing that they're doing is like crypto economically incenting all of these accounts. So, um, Every every individual who has an account on BitClout gets a certain amount of these BitClout tokens that can be claimed, and then uh, people can buy or sell them, trade trade the the various assets, and trade the various accounts. So, like, uh, I don't know if you know this, David, but like, you're in here too. Like, if I look up Trustless State, um, how much am I worth? Let's let's find is that, out. Is that how it works? I think. I think it will show you, at least it will show you how much, uh, let's see, trustless. Three S's. There, you, there you are. This is you. I'm pulling up your BitClout account, okay? So this is your coin price, $749, right. okay? And 750 will, smackers. You've got two right. followers. People will trade oh, that great. up or down. And in order to claim this, you have to um, actually create a, a private key for yourself and then tweet out something from your Twitter account to actually claim it. Wow. But uh, I don't know if you know this, dude, but you've got some creator coins already. So you've got 25K worth of uh, creator coins. Wait, now <laughs> I have $25,000 I can go get? Yeah, I'm pretty Wait, sure really? that's it. You can't actually go get it though. So here's the thing. You can go claim your account, but apparently there's only a way to buy BitClout tokens with Bitcoin. Okay, so you can buy them, uh, but they haven't yet turned on withdrawals. So <laughs> I don't uh, know. Yeah. I don't know if actually you can like 
by the time you go to withdraw this, whether it'll be worth that much. But um, that's how they're incenting people yeah. to start using these. Like, look at uh, Tyler Winklevoss here. Let's see how much money. Let's see how much BitCloud so. value he has. Uh, so almost 900K is market value that Tyler's been awarded with uh, the tokens Alrighty. he holds. So Alrighty. anyway, maybe an Inter interesting, interesting experiment. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. The other thing is like a whole bunch of insiders got in first. Right. So and these are insider VC firms that oh, you know, wow. pre-invested in this. Um, wow, so that's, that's it, like all of them. It's, it's almost like it feels a little bit like the opposite in some ways of uh, some of the fair distribution, sort of community distribution trends that are going on this summer. So um, right. some people don't love that about right. BitCloud. But. Yeah, if the if the actual account holders were made all the money, not the VC funds, that I bet this would have made a much bigger splash. It's possible. But uh, yeah, we'll have to see where this evolves. David, are you ready to get to uh, takes? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, what's the first take here? NFTs explained in two images. What are we looking at here? Yeah, so we are looking at, <laughs> I don't even know if this is an image. We just see a, a white box uh, with J JPEG in it, and then we see another white box with NFT in it, except the NFT box has a little blue Twitter checkmark on it of authenticating the legitimacy of the NFT. And this is what we've been saying about NFTs all along. It's not about the image. It's about the legitimacy. It's about the authenticity. And so if you want to understand why NFTs are going for millions of millions of dollars when like you can just take a screenshot and get the same thing, it's because one is legitimate and one's not. And people fight over these Twitter blue check marks all the time. Uh, and and Vitalik actually recently just put out a, uh, a, a, uh, a blog post on his blog talking about how one of the most underappreciated forces in the world is legitimacy. And so I, I see this as a extension of that. Uh, NFTs are, value of all, are valued because of their legitimacy. Yeah, Vitalik's blog post was just like brilliant this week. And right, mm -hmm. that's the same thing that gives, gives cryptocurrencies its value, mm -hmm. right? Why is totally. why is Ether more valuable than um, Ethereum Classic? Mm -hmm. Why is Bitcoin more valuable than like Bitcoin Diamond or Bitcoin mm -hmm. Satoshi's vision? It's because legitimacy. It's the because, people make it uh, so. The people make it so. And the social coordination mechanism underlines all of these crypto economic systems and underlines like all of our traditional legacy systems as well it's like this hidden force that operates everywhere um and um it's 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 very clear to see i think in nfts uh, the the aspect of legitimacy coming out and and being assigned some level of value totally ryan this one's you tell us about efficiency yeah so i you know what what's really striking to me with uniswap v3 launches uh how they did it with so few people right so wells fargo has about two hundred thousand employees right one of the largest banks in the world two hundred thousand employees coinbase is an order of magnitude smaller in terms of its uh its number of employees and so an order of magnitude more efficient they have 200 two thousand employees and again like coinbase with a a, a you know a hundred um, billion dollar market cap is getting is closing in on Wells Fargo's market cap as well, wow. but they're doing it with wow. much fewer that. employees, right? Uh, and then we've got Uniswap, which is even an order of magnitude more efficient. They're doing everything that they're doing. Or two orders if, of magnitude. Yeah, that's right, David. Like two orders of magnitude more efficient. And because of all this, it it just really feels like traditional banks don't stand a chance, right? You can do everything you need to do with much fewer employees when you use. Um, crypto as a you know economic settlement, and then when you get into DeFi, we're even talking about more orders of magnitude more efficient. Like the amount that 
that Uniswap has done. They've, they've grown uni tokens to a $15 billion valuation with just 20 employees. And that's the benefit of deploying something on Ethereum. And I think like, what's the net benefit for the world and society? Right now, uh, the finance industry in the US consumes 6% of GDP. A lot of this is like rent seeking, low value finance, just like a lot of, you know, there's some efficiency there, but there's a lot of paper pushing. There's a lot of inefficiency there. And what if we could allocate all of that GDP to something better? That That the is arts, the promise perhaps. of DeFi. The arts, you know, right. you know, social good, public good, Who, like who knows what we could do with that. But um, this technology is really transformative. You can do everything that like a bank can do with 20 employees rather than 200,000. That's the bottom line. Yeah. The Uniswap has a little trick up its sleeve and it's really 20 employees plus Ethereum. And Ethereum yes. is where it gets so much tailwinds, right? Ethereum is providing security to Uniswap intrinsically. And that's why Ethereum as a piece of technology is so powerful. Free security to anyone that builds on it. And so it, that's where so much of that efficiency comes from. Yeah, free security, a basically a banking layer to plug mm -hmm. right into with uh, without the overhead of an entire nation state. Um, David, this DeFi Pulse, I know, caught your eye. This was a poll done by DeFi Pulse, a Twitter poll. And the question was asked, which quality of the scalability trilemma do you find the most important? Decentralization, security, or scalability? Decentralization won with about 50%. Second came security. Third came scalability. What what is this uh, you know Twitter poll survey right. telling you? What's, yeah, what's the takeaway? So happy to see that de decentralization is coming in first at fifty percent, but it needs to be way higher than 50% because you know we have security in the legacy system like we have encryption and and uh sha 256 like encryption for that protects your bank account we've got that uh we have scalability we already have that as well it's decentralization that is the unique thing that crypto economic networks bring to the table so the fact that like people are saying well we know we need priority and or we need to prioritize more security and more scalability is missing the whole entire point and so like people that who are in crypto who don't value decentralization are missing the point like decentralization comes first and decentralization is why this is a movement by the people for the people and so again i'm glad that decentralization came in first but also it basically needs to be a hundred percent right because this whole entire industry is based on top of decentralization if we don't have decentralization we don't have anything how do you change their mind then probably answering to more scalability because I think what people are talking about is just like, I don't want to pay gas fees. And so like the way that you don't pay gas fees is you use a centralized system. Uh, and, and I think the, the way that we p change people's minds is by solving security and scalability so that people can be reminded about why decentralization is so important. It's difficult to know that how important decentralization is until something like really bad happens. Like I right. feel like the the GME moment where everyone realized that, you know, all of traditional finance uh, is completely rigged. Yeah, gated backdoor deals. That's when they realize the value of decentralization. But mm -hmm. absent that, like you can kind of go on your your merry way and and not realize that you're on um a, you know a centralized system that that has these people who can pull the strings. Granted, though, if Ethereum and, and crypto at, at large is doing things right, people 
should forget about decentralization because like it's securing the system, right? Like we have decentralization, therefore we can kind of forget about it. It should just be in the background. Um, you're totally right that like decentralization only becomes relevant and uh, when somebody rug pulls somebody or attacks something or et cetera. Um, so maybe, maybe perhaps that people are devaluing decentralization is actually an indication that the, the decentralization is actually working. David, um, I don't know if you saw this report by Ryan Watkins, but it was uh, talking about um, creating an independent monetary system on top of Ethereum. And the, the difference between stablecoins that are really pegged to the dollar versus this new crop of non-pegged stablecoins that we've talked about so often uh, on Bankless. And here's a graphic I, I liked in, in particular. Let me see if I can find it. Um, it paints Ethereum and Ether as sort of the, the base reserve asset of the system in the same way that gold was a reserve asset of the, you know, the legacy tra uh, traditional financial system before the, the, the 1930s. Uh, and then these new assets like Rye, which we might talk about OHM and Float, being sort of based on top of this reserve asset. And then DeFi protocols being kind of the banking layer. I was really struck by this, uh, this comparison and this analysis um, because on the on the Ethereum side, this is really a a self sovereign, completely, you know, um, parallel monetary system from the central banks that has no external dependencies, and that's really the vision that that we're building for and building towards on top of Ethereum. It's really cool to see a Masari analyst uh, put it in this way and and like really understand that Bankless is the end destination here. Yeah, I made a very similar graphic um, back in my Ether triple point asset um, asset article, and I'm pretty sure that's where Ryan got the inspiration for this one. But when I made it, I made the uh, the Ethereum triangle inversed because Ethereum is being built. We are building on top of Ethereum, and Ethereum Ether, the asset, gets injected upwards into DeFi. Right, it gets sucked up into the DeFi economy to make these new products. With a legacy system, it's very much a top down system where gold is captured by the central banks and then forcibly made makes the people below it use the dollar. Uh, and so I, I do think that illustration of a bottom-up versus top-down system is important. Let's talk about uh, something else because this is one of those uh, self-sovereign reserve assets that are being built on top of um, Ethereum, an asset we, we've talked about called Rye. Um, you said, get your brain synced to this new paradigm. USDC die are dollars or dollar coins, but Rye, that is a true stable coin. What's the difference between a dollar coin and a stable coin, David? Yeah, we have crypto dollars and USDC and DAI and, and USD uh, Tether, um, and, and those are crypto dollars. And then there are stable coins. I'm trying to get people to re-architect in their brain what a stable coin is, because you know pre previously stable coins are things that are pegged to the dollar, but that's because we didn't really have any alternatives. I think the more accurate definition of what a stable coin is, is something that is stable that isn't a dollar. If it was a dollar, we would just use the, the word dollar, but stable is its own thing. And when we call dollars stable coins, that is using this false anchor of the stability of the dollar. And people should be reminded that the dollar is actually not stable. We just don't have any other anchor better than it to anchor things to. And something that could come out of crypto economics, could come out of Ethereum, is new paradigms of stability. And so I think Rye, which is a again, a new paradigm instability is the new stable coin. And so Ryan, if you go to my, my next tweet, uh, I think um, I, what I say when I'm, when I'm talking about this to uh, Stefan from the, uh, from the Reflexor project, CEO of, of uh, Reflexor, the, the, the team that put out Rye, I've said, 
I'm, I've become a huge fan of intentionally using the less optimal word stablecoin, uh, even though it's still accurate on a technical level, as the me mechanism is a claim to claim semantic territory. And so I say, Rye, Rye is speaking this next quote. No, fuck you. You're $1. I'm a stablecoin. Uh, because again, the dollar is not necessarily stable. It's all, stability is, is referential. You need two points. It's, it's relative. You need two points to claim stability. And what Rai is, is it's a new paradigm in stability. It's a new paradigm in uh, what a stable coin can be. So DAI, USDC, those are crypto dollars. Rai is the stable coin. And that's my take. Yeah, that's a very cool take. I think that's going to become increasingly important to the um, the Ethereum economy and to the crypto economy to have our own source of self-sovereign, non-central bank dependent uh, monetary assets out there. Uh, that's, that's definitely a cool difference. David, we are going to get to what we are excited about and of course the meme of the week. But before week. we do... We want to tell you about the sponsors that made this episode possible. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version two, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you, all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got back into crypto back in 2017, and it has been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens like Wi-Fi, Aave, Uni, and also they are one of the few exchanges that has liquid DAI markets. Having both the option of logging into the Gemini.com website or instead opening the Gemini mobile app has allowed me to be able to access any and all exchange and on or off ramp services that I've needed to on a moment's notice. With instant deposits and fast withdrawals, I'm able to make my money do the things I want it to when I want it to. You can buy crypto safely and securely on Gemini with the peace of mind of knowing that your investments are insured and protected with industry-leading cybersecurity. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after signup, you'll be gifted a free $15 bonus. Check them out, gemini.com slash go bankless. All right, David, what are you excited about this week? I'm excited about, I think, a lot of a narrative tailwinds coming for Ethereum. Um, first off, as we all know, Money Printer Go Burr is the meme of the year, the meme of COVID. And we're about to have Ether Burner Go Burn Noises for Ether. <laughs> uh, and that's coming in, in July. 
Uh, EIP-1559? EIP-1559, the one we know and love. Um, but also, uh, what I'm also kind of worried about for the industry at large is that they, these are coming massive coming headwinds for Bitcoin because of the energy conversation. Uh, yeah. And this is something I've really been thinking about lately. I've actually kind of changed my mind on the whole Bitcoin energy debate because while Bitcoin itself is useful, and I'm glad that it exists, that doesn't mean that the energy consumption of Bitcoin is actually useful energy consumption because Bitcoin can be a useful product, but literally the way that it works is it becomes a useful product by wasting energy. And so there's an important nuance there because people think that like, um, it, the, whether you, what side of the, uh, the energy debate that you land on is determined on whether you or not you think Bitcoin is valuable or not. But I think there's a more nuanced take where you can say that Bitcoin is valuable and it's made, Bitcoin is made by a race to waste energy, right? Proof of work is also proof of waste. And so Bitcoin can be valuable, but it's secured by wasting energy. And like maybe it's not a waste and when we encompass everything because Bitcoin is useful, but it's still wasting energy. The energy is still unproductive. Uh, and so I don't think Bitcoin, Bit, the, the climate change narrative and Bitcoin's is wasteful narrative, I think will actually be the biggest threat Bitcoin has ever faced. And as a result, that's going to put massive tailwinds behind Ethereum uh, in its proof of stake form. I don't think people are ready to assume that like Ethereum is, is going to be this green, efficient uh, energy savings uh, system that the, the Ethereum community knows it to be because it's not there yet. But once proof of stake is here, there's going to be a massive juxtaposition behind Bitcoin's intentionally wasteful uses, use of, en of energy and Ethereum's absolutely zero use of energy. And, and that is something I'm... I'm Perhaps I guess I'm excited about, but I'm really just like that's going to be a, an interesting story to follow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think so. Um, today I, I tweeted something out. You know, we had our uh, Ethos Ultrasound Money episode, which is you know just fantastic. I thought and there were a lot of arguments about about Ethereum there, but there were a lot of um, I guess criticisms about um, Bitcoin's engine. Right, just mm -hmm. Justin Drake, yeah, you know, at least compared the Bitcoin engine to the Ethereum engine and uh, said that the Bitcoin engine, economic engine, was much much less efficient. And I tweeted out and I asked if any Bitcoiners would like to kind of respond to these criticisms, rebut them. Um, any like Bitcoiners who are like rational and can uh, you know make an Not argument. It seems that way, but one name that always comes to mind is is Nick Carter, right? And someone yes. actually tagged Nick Carter on that tweet yeah. to come respond to some of these you know, criticisms. And he said, "I can't. I'm I'm too biz busy fighting people over the energy debate, uh, eco socialists." Uh, he called them about the energy debate, and I just thought to myself, um, "Man, I'm really glad I don't have to fight that debate right. on the like when when we're talking about Ethereum in like 18 months." Uh, once the the network merges and once Ethereum transitions to proof of stake, there is no need to to go into the into into media and fight the eco socialists as as he right. called them on any of this. You could just say, yeah, and the answer to the energy problem is a more efficient engine, and it's called proof of stake, and we're not burning energy anymore. Um, so I I think you're right. This is the early phases of. Bitcoiners having to fight that narrative. And what they're going to have to do is justify Bitcoin's value proposition, not just for consuming all of this energy, but for consuming this energy. Uh, and, and, and like in the, while there's other systems out there like Ethereum proof of stake, and that's going to be a, a hard case, I think, to, to make. And it's not just a, 
uh, one month, you know, media picks up this story, it's going to be like the next 10 years of yeah. fights yep. uh, in, in this whole climate debate. And we've already seen Bitcoiners really struggle to explain Bitcoin's value proposition outside of proof of work because people don't like to admit that Bitcoin is valuable after it's done like a 10,000% three years for the, for the three years after you said it was rat poison squared, right? People have the cognitive dissonance of not wanting to accept Bitcoin. And then like, they, and then they just get to align themselves with, well, it's wasteful, right? Right. And like, also imagine not having, imagine trying to fight like the, 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 the climate change fight. The whole world is against climate change, right? And then all of a sudden Bitcoiners are having to align themselves for better or for worse with like the climate change deniers. Like th those are the Bitcoin allies, right? Which is kind of weird. Like that's not the most ideal group of people that you want to align yourself with. Uh, and it's just not, they're not finding themselves in good company. Reg again, regardless of whether Bitcoin is a useful, useful end result of all of that energy, that's where Bitcoin has found itself to be, which is not a favorable position. Yeah, agreed, definitely. Ryan, what are you excited about? Um, you know, I'm going to say Uniswap V3. And the reason is we get to explore a whole new money Lego. I feel like the, the version three design is just a, it's a significant departure from Uniswap V1 and V2. It's like a whole new design space that, that that's opened up. And the cool thing about this is we've said so often, David, anything that can be tried and made on DeFi will be, right? This is a whole nother design, but we don't lose the Uniswap V2 design. That's still out there, that can still live, that can still accrue liquidity. If the market selects for, for V3 and uh, V3 wins over V2, then that just means V3 was superior, but we don't lose anything in the process. And even um, you know, forks, Uniswap, formerly Uniswap forks like SushiSwap, get to execute on that original V2 design. So we've just created this whole new potentially revolutionary automated market maker design called like Uniswap V3. And we don't lose anything that made the previous iterations of this uh, work. And then it's all going to be deployed on optimism come springtime, right? So this is Ethereum layer two in option. Uh, in action, a whole new automated market maker design. Uh, it's just super bullish. And then, of course, David, we finally have Hayden Adams coming to the podcast. Finally to letting talk him on. about all of this. <laughs> yeah, finally letting him on. Um, <laughs> seriously, he's a hard guy to to track down. We got Mark mm -hmm. Cuban on Bankless before we got Hayden Adams. So this is a much anticipated episode. So I'm pretty excited about all of that. Yeah, for, for those that aren't understanding the uh, the joke about Hayden Adams, is we've been trying to get Hayden Adams on the podcast since the genesis of Bankless. Like we since did this, we started. Yeah, yeah. So we did this like intro series of like all the basic DeFi apps, and we got like Mariano from MakerDAO to talk about MakerDAO, fantastic representative. We got Robert Leshner from Compound to talk about Compound. We got Stani from Ave. We got Kane from Synthetics, and and we had to talk to to not not uh, Hayden. We talked to to uh, Caleb, who again fantastic representative for for. Uniswap, but Uniswap was the only application that we couldn't get the actual founder for. So a whole year later, we're finally getting Hayden on the podcast. It's going it's to be a good one. Uh, we asked him uh, to specifically set aside two whole hours of recording time to make that podcast happen. Yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, much anticipated, a year in the making podcast. All right, David, let's get to meme of the week. The me, whole point about the weekly roll-ups, the whole point, the meme of the week. <laughs> this is why the roll-ups exist. Here it is. It's, uh, you know, look, it's Justin Drake week, so we got a Drake meme. Mm -hmm. What what's, what's going on in this meme? 
Yeah, this is the traditional Drake meme, the one where like for the first panel is Drake saying no, and then the second panel is Drake saying yes. So the first panel is Drake saying no to learning finance at school, and then it's Drake <laughs> saying no to learning about finance through crypto. And I can say yes. He's saying yes. Oh to yeah, learning. saying yes yeah. To, to learning about finance through crypto. And I can personally a hundred percent relate to this because I don't know about what you studied in, in in college, Ryan, but I studied psychology and health sciences, uh, and so all of my financial like and like learning has happened through crypto. Uh, and I kind of consider myself to be pretty well educated with how fi finance works. I can keep up with all my my like my finance bros that went to, to actual finance school. Uh, and so, you know, learning, learning about finance through, quote unquote, the dark forest, where you have to get to the other end of crypto to really understand crypto. And once you do, you know about finance. Yeah, it's funny because I actually took finance as part of my undergraduate, and um, I feel like I actually didn't truly really learn finance until I started learning crypto. And it's because what they teach you in in business school, like you know, you know, traditional uh, education is like corporate finance, which is the small mm -hmm. sliver subset of finance. of finance, right? It's like finance for the old world. Um, <laughs> they don't teach you the history of money. They don't teach you like in depth. Uh, economics. They don't mm -hmm. teach you about the social coordination systems behind all of these monetary assets. They don't really teach you right. anything from a personal finance perspective in terms of, yeah, game theory, how to grow your net worth, like individually, right. you know, long-term games, all of these things. Um, all of that came through studying uh, crypto. So, man, if you want to actually learn finance, like not just like corporate finance, lowercase finance, but finance with a capital F, crypto is the crash course, man. I think uh, even writing for Bankless and doing these podcasts, David, it's been a, a massive education experience for, uh, for, for me, certainly. And, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't learned anything as fast as, uh, as in crypto. And the cool thing about it too, is like every decision costs you, you know, like, right. or, or benefits you. Mm -hmm. So you Instant get to, feedback. um, you get instant feedback <laughs> as well. Did that work or did you fail? That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so look, if you're trying to learn real finance, uh, listening to Bankless, learning crypto is the way to do it. I think there's some truth in this Drake meme. Absolutely. Absolutely. This was a good one. All right, man. I think that's all we have. Of course, risk and disclaimers. DeFi is risky. ETH is risky. So is crypto. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us for another Bankless Roll-Up. Bankless Nation, it is the last week of March. What time it is? <laughs> kill it. Kill it. What Restart. It what time it is? <laughs> Will Yoda speak for you on a Friday? Friday morning. Yeah, we, we should do that for the uh, April Fool's uh, weekly roll-up. Oh, that's going to be fun. All right. That'd be terrible. I would rather <laughs> shoot myself. How about we do it in an accent? Do you have any, like, you have a British accent or something? No. That's what makes it good. All right. If neither of us can do accents. All right. I'll just copy Anthony's Daily Gray intro. Have you listened to Anthony's <laughs> Daily Gray intro? It's so funny. He so we'll like try to speak like an Australian and he'll try to speak like an American. Sure. That week? Yeah. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. All right. Ready?